0: Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today again we have our friend Chris Rowe of Rowe Hunting Resources on the line. And in the last podcast we were covering uh, some questions from Justin McNew who had uh, a 16B, had drawn a 16B New Mexico tag. He was going to be coming from uh, the uh, north northwest, used to hunting Roosevelt elk, and was going to come down to New Mexico and. Uh, Chris did a great job answering his questions. Uh, today we're going to jump into some questions from Jamie Vassa. And he says, Jay, my son has drawn an early season Utah archery elk hunt in the Fillmore-Pavant unit, uh, let's see, uh, August 18th through September 14th, and an early season archery Nevada tag that has the last two weeks of August. So it sounds like two Elk tags. Um, in our research, the biologists in Utah have indicated that there are that elk are often found down low in the pinion juniper all through the summer and into the fall. Um, in your question and answer podcast with Chris Rowe, can you please discuss tactics for hunting elk in pinion juniper with a bow? Can you also discuss archery hunting tactics in August? Um, by the way, I will be hunting with Chris at his operation in Kansas this fall. I enjoy the podcast and what you guys do. Keep it up. Uh, Rob Boyle um, or excuse me, J- uh, Jamie Vasa. Rob Boyle is the next uh, group of questions. So Jamie, obviously, his son has drawn two elk tags, Chris. One in the state of Utah, which has early season dates, the 18th through September 14th. And then he also has an archery elk tag in Nevada that's the last two weeks of August. Um, and it sounds like they've talked to someone saying that the elk are going to be in the pinion juniper. I might argue with that a little bit, not that I'm discrediting the, the biologist and not that I'm saying that elk don't live in the pinion juniper all year long but I would urge uh, Jamie and, and Chris, uh, forgive me before you dive in. I would just urge Jamie to make sure that he doesn't, you know, possibly check some other sources as well because, you know, elk are notorious for being up in the high country where it's cooler in the summer and then moving down into the pinyon juniper. In Arizona, where, say, a unit nine, you've got ponderosa pines and juniper. There's not a big difference between the pines and the in the juniper country as far as temperature, but some of these high country areas, like Fillmore Puvant uh, in Utah, or even some of the mountain ranges in Nevada, there there is a big discrepancy between temperatures at you know nine and ten thousand feet and you know five thousand feet. So, um, Jamie, I would say if you've got great information from the biologist, that's fantastic, and we will cover your question on pinion juniper hunting. Um, but also make sure you cover your bases on both of those tags as the first thing I would think of is in late August type hunting um, is that those bulls typically, you know, are going to be in the velvet, way up in the high country, sometimes above timberline, you know, sometimes in the, you know, dark timber where they can get some shade and some cool. Um, So just make sure you cover all your bases, maybe talk to some other biologists and some other Forest Service guys and just make sure that your information there on the pinion juniper is not, you know, one-sided. And again, it's not taking anything away from the person you talk to. Just make sure you're covering all your bases there, Chris. Um, why don't you attack uh, his questions about hunting pinion juniper country?
1: Yeah, I I agree with everything you just said. Um, and then I'll piggyback, I uh, and say that if it is a situation where, again, we're talking, early, you know, mid, that middle part of August, that's, that's generally kind of early. You know, a lot of people think it's way too early, but I, you know, the, the elk, are there, uh, elk are there and, and you can engage them behaviorally in a, in a couple different ways. But um, I do know of some areas in southern Colorado that have a lot of pinyon, juniper, uh, but they also have another shrub component, like there might be a lot of oak brush or there might be a lot of uh, choke cherry, or something like that, where some of these bulls are down in the lower country because that's where the, just, it's lush, it's wet. Now, the cows and calves and younger bulls might be separated from them, but you'll have these pockets of bulls down in that wetter,
0: um, just little lush pockets. If that is and the case. even by the ag country too, right? I mean, yes, hayfields yes. and such are typically in the lower country as well. Yeah,
1: yes, and so and that's and that's where I would say that that I think the only caveat to what you said, because I agree wholeheartedly with what you said, but if there is water down low, and if there are some of these uh, just wetter pockets, and there's a diversity of Um, vegetation and structure where you have a little bit more of that shrub component into in in there with it. Keep in mind a lot of times, especially when we're talking mature bulls, they will separate themselves from the cow-calf groups and mid-August you might be still finding those bulls in those bachelor groups, so they very well may be separated. Now, in my experience um, those places early season sometimes those bulls are in some thick nasty I mean they're burrowed in like a tick and that's why because there's just good thick food and water All you know wherever they are you know all around them so they they can get in there and, and stay safe um so yes I agree Jay I mean you absolutely start talking with a couple other people and see if that if that holds true but if they're saying, "Oh no, no, you can find those mature bowls down in those little pockets down in the in the PJ," then my question, Jay, and and I am, I'm going straight back to, I'm I'm going to the places I'm thinking about Southern Colorado, and I'm going right straight to Unit Nine. Can you get to a spot where you can glass? That that's that's my first question to ask. Jamie, on that is, can you glass it? So, I I know you, I Jay. That's where you, that's where I mean. Obviously, you're going to do a seminar on this. So, what? It, I'm I'm going to defer to you. If you can glass it, if he can glass that area, what would you do?
0: Well, I mean, the first thing I'd do, you know, what I, I I didn't get enough information whether he is. Um, a local there, and happened to draw Utah in his home state. I know he mentioned he, his son drew Nevada as well. Um, but, I mean, regardless, if he has tons of time to spend out there all summer and glass, if his, if his hunt starts in August, in my opinion, they're pretty much going to be still in their summer pattern. So the more, more that he can get out there, uh, that Jamie can get out there and, and spend time glassing and, and covering that country – but when you look at it from a broad spectrum, I'm going to break the unit apart and I'm going to get the topo mass and I'm going to try and establish every single point, ridge, glassing spot, high point, you know, vantage area. I'm going to talk to other hunters. I'm going to talk to Forest Service. I'm going to talk to biologists. I'm going to talk to people that have hunted it. Anybody that I can talk to and say, hey, did you glass at all? Did you find any predominant points that you can see these elk from? Um, and, and always when I come to hunt a, a new area, any area, whether it's old or new, I'm constantly looking for where can I get to see. And a lot of times that means going to some of the highest points with the biggest vantage. But on top of that, there's also places where there's small little contour lines and just little breaks that you wouldn't think are you know, great glassing areas, but for whatever reason... You can get just enough elevation where you can cover a lot of country. Um, So, you know, I want to encourage um, anyone out there listening, and and especially uh, Jamie, to, you know, spend as much time in the summer as you can and then figure out where are the elk at, figure out where are the best places to see them, where are the best places to monitor what they're doing where are they going where are they feeding where are they bedding how long are they in the open is there areas where you can um you know are there pinch points or are there transition areas where their the elk are susceptible to either spot and or calling or what have you and you can learn so much by just getting up and observing and even if it means sacrificing days on your hunt um i i would try and find the bull that you want to kill like laughing, uh, also, you know, talking about hunting pin- pinion juniper. The one thing that I really do like about pinion juniper, and Chris, I'll i want your feedback on this, is from a calling standpoint, and even from a spot and stock standpoint. If the elk were silent, the one of the biggest benefits of of uh, spot and stock or calling in pinion juniper country is you can get pretty darn close to those elk without them knowing you're there rather than if you're hunting in ponderosa pines or aspen or what have you where they can visually see for a pretty good long distance. A lot of times in most traditional pinyon juniper country, they can't see more than about 20 yards because the way that the tree structures are you know they're staggered in a way, pretty thick and dense. Where you know when you try and walk through a pinion juniper forest, you can never walk a straight line. You're having to zig and zag in and out of those trees, um, and you can use that to your advantage. So you know, talking about pinion juniper strategy, um, I I use the sneaky feet. I think they're made by Sneak Tech. Um, and they've been phenomenal. They've got a big memory foam, um, you know, foot pad on them, super quiet, and it would be awesome for, um, you know, this hunt that Jamie, could, him and his son, could use both on the Nevada hunt and, and on the uh, Utah hunt where you can sneak into those elk pretty close. And even in August, Chris, and we'll talk a little bit about it when we get into our, you know, August tactics, you can get it If you can get in pretty close to elk and communicate with them in a close proximity, in other words, the first time they hear you call, you're pretty close to them, as long as you're subtle and you're, you're communicating using Chris's tactics that he talks about in row hunting resources, you can call in a lot of elk, even if they're not bugling. Um, Chris, I'll let you take the floor here on your thoughts on that.
1: No, I I agree. I mean, and I'm kind of I was kind of sitting there laughing because back when, this is a couple years ago now, when I came down and and we got to spend some time with uh, your elk hunter. Oh my gosh, it kills me! See, because you and I are very similar, and then we've got some really pronounced differences. Jay, you love to glass. I mean, you are the the glassic master. I do not like. And this goes back to the the previous. Uh, question two: The other podcast, but well, you know the, the other guy said I just don't have the patience to glass. I'm, I'm that way. I I will glass as much as I have to, in order to give me the information that I need. But after that, I just I would rather just bomb down it, not bomb down it. But I that's what I love about the Pinion's Universe because you can get in there. What you said, the way it, the habitat is chunked up, and the way the trees are are that mosaic man, you can get in there and you can get close. Most of the time, you can weasel your way down in there and get close. And that's what I, I love, just getting in there and just weaseling them out. Um, so I, you're absolutely right. Now, with that being said, too, I think the other part about this is, you know, I, it, hey, I love to call. There's no question about it. I love to call. I love to communicate with them. However... I, I think both of us would be remiss if we didn't just talk about the fact that, okay, well, A, you're talking about glass and figure out what the pattern is. Where are they going? When are they going there? What, you know, all pinch points. Absolutely, 100%. Me, the only thing I'm going to add to that is pinion juniper country as a habitat is pinion juniper country typically because that whole area is drier. And if it's drier, then that means water is usually a little bit more limited or it's a little bit more focused. And so if you are committed to hunting pinyon juniper areas, water ends up being a key factor. Where are they going? They need free water to drink each day or at least every other day, but at least usually it's every day. And then... Especially, you know, and if you've got some of these little pockets where it might be a little bit wetter, you know, who knows if you've actually got a live creek in there or something, or or you know springs or seeps or something like that where water's actually coming out of the ground or pooling up from rainstorms. If that's the case, great. Uh, If it's a man-made, you know, impoundment or something, that that's that's there you go. But regardless, water, I'm absolutely going to focus on where the heck is the water. So. If Jamie is not a resident out there or, if, or, if, or for anybody that's wanting to go hunt an area that has pinion juniper, get on Google Earth right now and start looking at your area. And I mean zoom in and start picking things apart and seeing if you could, you know, are there stock tanks, are there wildlife improvements, you know, as far as, you know, in uh, Arizona they call them trick tanks or, you know, wildlife waters or whatever, are there uh, stock ponds or impoundments or, or tanks or whatever? Where are the water sources? Okay, now let me take you a step back and say, I, I had one guy tell me he got upset with me one year because he's like, "Why are we not hunting this water hole I'm like, "What are you talking about?" Well, I, I found water. I'm like, "What do you What do you mean?" He's looking at a satellite image from 2013, and it showed a stock pond that had water in it. Well. We were driving by that stock pond every day. The reason why we were driving by is because it was bone dry. Okay, just because you find water on a satellite image does, or a water source, does not necessarily mean in a dry year that there's going to be water in it. But from a Google Earth standpoint, I'm going to pin, I'm going to mark every single one of the likely places that could have water. And then the first day I get into the unit, I am gonna go to every single one, berk, 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 and I'm just gonna start checking off: is there water or not? Yes, no. Yes, no. Yes, no. Yes, no. And then and Google, those signs? Yes, exactly. What what's what's the activity around here? And then on on Google Earth as well, you know, it may not even be a, a situation where you have a stock pond or a, a trip tank or something like that. Well, a trip tank is different, but it, you know. If you're looking at Google Earth and, you know, pick some imagery that usually now you can go back in time and you can look at different images from different dates, pick some imagery from the summer, you know, like late summer, August, the same time that you're going to be in there, and look at the color of the vegetation, the color of the vegetation is going to be a big key on whether or not there's water there. Your know, pinion juniper is going to be a really a dark olive, dark colored green. But if you're looking across a landscape and all of a sudden bam, you see a light green spot on the map, zoom in on that sucker. Because if it's light green, then it means it's probably a deciduous type of tree. So it's like a cottonwood or oak brush or you know something else. It's a lighter green Oftentimes, that's a pocket where there's, or there's a spot there where there's just a little bit better soil moisture. There might be a wallow in there. There might be a little spring there. There might be something there. I'm going to plot that on the map too. And then when you get in there, like you, like Jay just said, what is the sign? You know, how much? If, if this this stock pond's got one set of tracks in it, and then a mile away, this other little pocket of water is. It looks like someone took a rototiller on it. Okay, well, I'm going to pay attention to that. And then I'm going to get up, I'm going to, like you just said, I'm going to get up, I'm on glass. I'm going to watch, I'm going to see what's going on. Because the other thing, especially early in, you know, when we're talking middle of August, like you said, Jay, that a lot of times those bulls can still be on summer mode. Oftentimes, if you've got a water source and there's activity around it, Sometimes those things are predictable as the sunrise when they come in and out and engage that water. Set a ground blind. Either, you know, brush in and make a little dirt, ground, you know, a little pit ground blind there or bring in a, you know, hike in a, uh, a double bowl style, you know, ground blind or something like that. And, and use a, you know, use a ground blind middle part of the day. Because the other thing, yes, I love to call, and what Jay was talking about, you know, getting in there and being able to work close is, is awesome, when you're on your feet chasing bugles and and going and actually engaging animals. But the other thing I love about the Pinyon Juniper and some of these areas is if you found water, because the habitat is so messed up like that and and chunked up, they actually feel, I think, a little more comfortable moving through that landscape and actually engaging that water throughout the day. And so there's, I mean... there's plenty of times where people have been very successful at sitting water in the middle part of the day in the Juba and having bulls just walk right in broad daylight, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Here's a big old giant bull coming up to get water. He might not have it. I mean, again, if we're talking I'm, middle was, of August. but
0: Chris, let me add something real fast here. You know, check the... Everybody out there listening, check the state that you're hunting and the regulations and what have you, but set a stinking trail camera if you... Get there in the summer and you have time to scout, set some trail cameras on some of these waters in the pinion juniper country in the more arid country. I mean pinyon juniper is, is arid country and typically water is key. Set, you know join the, join the crowd and set trail cameras and you'll know what's coming in and then you'll have a, a idea of you know oh this bolts here, that bolts here. And more than likely, the last two weeks of August hunting pinion juniper country, they're not going to have much change in their pattern, Um, so I want to throw that in there as well. I mean, set some cameras up, and as long as they're legal in the state you're hunting and time frame and all that, um, I mean, give yourself every advantage you can. Learn as much as you can. Inventory, you know, those bulls. I know um, Ryan with DC Outfitters, I've had him on the podcast several times talking about Utah. and He's killing some of the best bulls. His favorite time is that first two weeks of the hunt, the last two weeks of August, right when it starts, and he's he's, he's patterning these bulls on wallows, patterning these bulls on on water holes, and in some cases, he's getting up in, in a lot of cases, he's tree-standing them. Um, yeah. So, you know, those are definitely tactics that, that uh, sometimes it's a little hard in a pinion juniper to put a tree stand, but there's. A lot of times, a pond, a you know, random ponderosa pine here and there that you could set a tree stand on, as well as Chris is talking about a ground blind. Go ahead, Chris. No, no, I, no,
1: but just keep bouncing with it because you're right. I mean, that that is, it's funny. I, I mean, just as a little quick aside, Colorado went through. A, you know, every year the or every five years the big game season structure, you'll have people propose that you know, well, we want to change the season season date so it starts September 1st and then goes to the end of September because, in their mind, they don't like the fact that the season starts at the end of August. And they're, oh, it starts too early. I love, I love hunting in late August just because of that. I mean, in some places, depending on where they are, those bulls are still on that summer mode or they've just broken up from their summer groups and they're just starting to look for cows man, there's so many different opportunities and ways to engage those animals and call them to where, yeah, but I'm serious. If you've got some good water, then you can literally hunt effectively all day long. You can go out in the morning. You can glass from a hilltop or whatever. You find a big bull. He's out there feeding or whatever. If you want to jump down in or maybe he's starting to bugle, Maybe he's starting to kinda of just feel a little frisky or whatever and you want to jump down in there and chase after him and, and try to call him, go for him. And then but then middle of the part of the day, if you want to relax and nap and do whatever, rather than going back to camp and doing it, go crawl into a, a ground blind and chill the rest of the app. you know, middle part of the day on water and then the evening, you can either either A sit the rest of the evening until dark or you know, go chase bugles in the afternoon or that late evening. But no, it water is usually usually key down in those pinyon junipers and so depending on where you are and how much moisture they're getting um, it you know obviously if all of a sudden you know <laughs> three days before the season starts you get this gigantic gully washer of a thunderstorm that dumps eight inches of moisture okay every, <laughs> every pond might be full but if it stays dry and, and the water is isolated oh yeah. You, wherever those at, now and you just nailed it too jay about the game cameras sometimes you'll figure out where the best water sources are because there's 18 game cameras on the stinking water so so you can you can also evaluate what your possible other hunter pressure might end up being in that area as well but um no and then the only other thing that i would add on that one as far as how how i would engage it um and and I'm and this is I'm glad this actually came up because I, I forgot to mention this in the previous podcast. You know, people hear me talking all the time about cow calling, and uh, that's one criticism that people definitely give me about. Oh, he just talks about cow calling. Well, anybody that's on the elk module knows that. No, I've got an entire series in there and videos on with bugling and bull vocalizations as well, but. I think the reason why most of the time I I focus on cow calling is that because typically that's where I generally... When I'm going to work an animal, not necessarily locate an animal or or find, what you know, prospecting, but when I want to work an animal, I will usually jump to cow calls first, cow vocalizations first. Really... A because I can I can be very successful with it, but B also simply because there's so many other people out there that just simply bugle or jump straight to bugle tactics, and so people end up forgetting the fact that you can actually use cow calls very effectively in some of these areas that you might you know most people are talking about challenging bulls or worrying bulls or whatever. Well, in this case, oftentimes when we're talking mid. you know, that early part or later part of of August, quite honestly, sometimes I've found that the bulls are actually more interested in other bull sounds maybe than cow calls. So this is one of those situations where that bugle is going to be my friend, maybe not um, just doing full-on bugles. I, I'm, I can almost tell you right now I probably won't be doing any, quote, unquote, what people call a challenge bugle or what you know. I, I, I classify as a dominant bugle. I'm probably not going to be doing many of those, but from just your basic contact bugles, the, the level one contact bugles, to whines and moans and hops and, and just chuckles and all those subtle vocalizations that bulls do with one another, sometimes as, as, as those antlers goes from velvet and they start to dry out and they start getting hard horned and they start rubbing their velvet, you'll, and this is in August, you'll see them start to spar a little bit more. They start to get a little bit more testy. They don't want to be any of, you know, they, they start to separate themselves a little bit more. That's where other bull vocalizations can be absolutely dynamite. And again, I'm not talking about big, full on bugles, I'm just talking the subtle stuff. Those can be absolutely dynamite. Deadly in those pinions universe because if you've got a bull pattern and you know where he normally goes, and then all of a sudden you you know you start off the season or you you see the game camera and says that there's three or five different bulls using this this particular water source, but then when you get there and you start watching, all of a sudden now it's just down to two, and then the next day it's down to one. All right, they're starting to separate. You can slip in there, get close, and now use those subtle bull vocalizations. A lot of times, they won't even bugle at you. They're not going to scream at you. They're just going to maybe mew at you. They might chuckle at you. They'll keep it low-key, but boy, oh, boy, here they come checking you out. And the other thing is, if you've got a good set of brown, you know, good quality, hard brown antlers, and I'm not talking about giant. I'm talking uh, something that's functional, like a a nice set of four decent 4x4, maybe decent 5x5 antlers, do not hesitate to set up in areas where you know that those especially close to bedding areas you've watched they've kind of disappeared into the pinion juniper or you heard them and they've just kind of vanished off into a certain direction you can't you don't know where they are get yourself on the downwind side get in close set up and just cold call rattling
0: absolutely just rattle and
1: absolutely use. And what I say is, and I talk about this, and you can see me talk about this on one of my videos. Uh, well, actually, it's on YouTube, too. Um, I think it's called Looking for Big Bulls in Southern Colorado or something like that. Uh, YouTube. That's one of the YouTube videos. Um, Primos makes the cowgirl cow call. It's a little tiny bite-and-blow-style call. But the reason why I like the Primos one is because of the, of the, the rubber that they use. It gives a great sound... If you listen to bulls and how they whine when they are, and again, if you you log into, if you end up logging into the elk module, go on to the bull vocalizations uh, series, and you can hear me talking about this and giving a demonstration. You can see bulls demonstrating this. If you listen to how they whine with each other while they're sparring, oh, my gosh, does the cowgirl Mm -hmm cow call do that wine absolutely perfectly dude you can simulate a couple bulls just sparring tickling antlers you will sucker other bulls out of their bed oh it is it is such a fun way to hunt you just got to be careful because they're going to come in silent you'll just see the you know in pin, pinion juniper country you'll end up hearing the rocks crackling you'll hear kicking rocks and then you'll see the feet coming under the under the pj Get yourself set because a lot of times they come sneaking in, and it can be awesome.
0: Yeah, it's always great to do it with a buddy. You know, I would encourage Jamie to to have a set of antlers on both of these hunts. Um, have a set of antlers that you can clank together and use the you know use it just like you would use a cow call. Get the shooter set up in you know get the wind, get everything set up just how Chris would normally tell you how to do it um in in the elk module in in setup um but it can work I think early season well quite frankly any time during the season I think it's one of the most underutilized calls there is as far as tactics and that's clanking elk antlers and then if you can add the you know sound that Chris is talking about you know the (coughs) just any (coughs) yeah and 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 you can add that I mean a lot of times they're going to come straight in. There's going to be no hesitation. They may come in kind of looking, but they're going to come to that sound. I mean, very rarely, uh, it, it almost works every time. It, it, well, it would and, be a tactic most... that I think you could use throughout the whole season, and I think more people should do it, and I think they would do it with more success. And you don't hear the clanking fighting like you would hear maybe mid-rut, mid-September but you just start ticking them together and making those little sounds, oh, I mean, who doesn't want to go see who's kind of rubbing, you know, fighting with each other or kind of doing some sparring? And, and absolutely, and what you said is absolutely true. Most of the time they're not going to come,
1: at this, part, at this time of the year, they're not going to come in aggressive. They're, get, they're going to come in uh, curious. Now, depending on the bull that you're dealing with, if you're talking younger age class bulls, do not be surprised if somebody swings around and comes in downwind. So, absolutely, if, if you're talking about a father-son type of deal or, you know, a, a team situation where you've got more than one person, I I think just if, if you know the direction that the elk should be coming from, then absolutely, put the shooter out front to where somebody can cover that direction. But if you're just in a cold call at a, at a water source, then have the have the caller whoever's going to be rattling antlers have well it doesn't even matter it, have the caller positioned where it makes sense for there to be somebody you know uh, uh, activity there but have the shooter either be with the caller watching the downwind side or have the shooter just a little bit off the side on the downwind side because that's a, that's one of the risks of, of again if if you if if you call like I do, and use some of the things that I, that I do, you actually get yourself into trouble because um, separating the caller and the shooter too far. Because so many times the elk just comes. I mean, just they're 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 going to come to me. So just sit with me. You know what I mean? That's just kind of one of the, one of the things that I tell people. But definitely cover the downwind side, but don't separate yourself too far to the point where you can't cover effectively all the way around you because they'll i mean they just it's a natural sound that they are hearing at that time of year it, it is not, it's something that nobody else usually does really and so most of the time anytime i've rattled them in they just come in curious but relaxed they just stroll in and look and once they start coming in and looking. Once you see you can hear the, the footsteps in the, in the gravel, you hear the, you see the feet coming, in. just set them babies down and just be quiet and just let them look and if they if you need to coax them just a little bit more, just don't change. Don't go blow a cow call. Don't go and, and blow a bugle. Just grab that little bite boat and just give them a slight little whine again and then let them, let them search their way right on through. But the Pinion Juniper makes it so great because they have to come seek you out. Most of the time, they're going to come right
0: in without hesitation. Chris, um, it's all good stuff. Uh, I think we'll end on this, too. I mean, obviously, he's got two hunts. Uh, It sounds like the Nevada hunt is just a late August hunt, so I would assume they're going to hunt the the Nevada hunt first and then go hunt the Fillmore-Pavant um, that's a phenomenal tag on the Fillmore Pavant. I don't, Jamie, I don't know how good the quality is in Nevada where you're at. I don't know what hunt you have, um, but do not let the Fillmore Pavant tag, uh, go without a bunch of time being devoted to that hunt. I would tell you that, you know, the last, you know, eight to 10 days of that, uh, Utah hunt is probably going to be phenomenal. Uh, and I'm excited to see how you guys do, so make sure you double back with us and send us a picture. I appreciate the questions. Um, Chris, we've got other questions here to get at. Um, sure. I'd like to thank the sponsors of this podcast. I'd like to thank Go Hunt Insider. Uh, they're the best Western hunting resource tool out there. If you're looking at putting in for all these Western states, uh, you can use the Go Hunt Insider to find out draw odds, statistics, uh, harvest data, you can uh, every uh, application period they come out with great application strategies. Use the J Scott promo code. When you use that J Scott promo code, you're going to get a $50 Go Hunt Gear Shop gift card uh, that you can spend immediately. Uh, they're also giving away monthly giveaways of great gear, uh, great hunts, and what have you. All you have to do is be an Insider member to win. I uh, also want to thank Kuyu.com. I want to remind the listeners out there that I will be in um, California, in Dixon, California, on Saturday, June 23rd for the Kuyu Mountain Academy. Um, the showroom opens at 9.30 on Saturday, June 23rd. Uh, it's, the first seminar starts at 10. The showroom is open from 9.30 to 4.00. Um, There's going to be a showroom sale. You get 15% off with a purchase of $150 or more. They're going to give away two giveaways at each seminar. There's chances to win $250 gift cards, um, one for the RSVP attendees, and one for the same-day attendees. So you can go to Kuyu.com, check out the link for the Mountain Academy, if you register early, RSVP, you're going to be entered into a drawing for one of those $250 gift certificates. And then there will also be a separate drawing for the same-day attendees, uh, and you must uh, they'll be awarded at each seminar, and you must be pre- uh, present to win. Uh, the seminars, there are there's six seminars. Jason Harrison is going to go first from 10 to 1045. Uh, he's the Kuyu founder. He's going to be talking about the new 2018 uh, product previews. Uh, The second seminar is Lance Kronberger, uh, an Alaskan master guide, owner of Freelance Outdoor Adventures. He's going to be talking about hunting in extreme conditions of Alaska. Expect cold, wet, and miserable. Um, Lance is the guy that I'm actually hunting in August with on my Chugach doll sheep hunt, so that should be a great seminar. Uh, Seminar number three from 12 to 1245 is Paul Bride. He's an award-winning outdoor adventure photographer. He's going to do a crash course in documentary-style field photography. Uh, Then there's going to be lunch, uh, free lunch uh, from 1245 to 115. Brendan Burns, the KUYU's guide program director, is going to be doing researching and selecting the right hunt for you, expectations and preparation. And then uh, myself, yours truly, I'm going to be doing seminar number five from 2.15 to 3 p.m., uh, on optics, glassing, and field judging tips and techniques. Uh, and then Jason uh, Harrison is going to give the final seminar as well on preparing for a sheep hunt, gear, conditioning, and food. He's actually going to go through all of the gear uh, on for his uh, upcoming sheep hunt. So make sure to go to Kuyu.com. Uh, if you can't make it to California for whatever reason, they are also going to live stream it on their Facebook page. Um, So go to KUYU.com. I appreciate their sponsorship. And if there's any podcast listeners out there, uh, love to see you in California, in Dixon on the 23rd. Make sure to come and and say hi. Uh, I also want to thank the Outdoorsmen for their sponsorship, the Optics Authority, uh, uh, Outdoorsmen.com, 1-800-291-8065. Use the J. Scott promo code and you're going to get a 10% discount. Chris... uh, the, the next series of questions um, that we're going to talk about is from Rob Boyle, and he says, thanks for awesome podcast series. I've been listening to all episodes elk-related and have learned so much. My brother and I have Arizona bull archery tags this fall, and we're doing everything we can think of to get ready to try and kill our first bulls. I have a few questions that I don't think have been answered on your podcast, but I may have missed it. Number one, I was given some Tink's elk urine spray by a friend who swears by it for spraying on a limb in your calling setup to bring in an elk. What do you think? Let's just cover that one first, Chris. Go for it. I'll let you you tackle that one here first. Um, I have used elk urine in the past. Um, I've used it with mixed results. Uh, I typically, uh, I use the sneak tech, uh, you know, sneaky feet, um, and what I do a lot of times when I would actually spray that on those um, sneaky feet by sneak tech, and those things would be rank by the end of the season, Um, and I've seen it where you actually, I mean, I have actually walked and had wind change and had bad wind direction, and I've, had it where I've been able to get pretty close to those elk and them never smell my human scent now I've also had it where of course they're going to smell you every time you know they, they can recognize human scent but um, I, I'm kind of mixed on it I don't think it's something that's absolute necessity I think you could try it and if you had some success great um, you know I I would probably venture to guess if you absolutely sprayed yourself down, which is going to be a challenge because you can't ride in your vehicle or you'd have to take your clothes off. I mean, it, <laughs> it, is, it is horribly smelling. But I would argue that if you were got so aggressive with it that you absolutely sprayed under your arms, sprayed your socks, your feet, your belt line, and basically covered yourself with elk urine, if it was the right urine, I'm going to bet that it would probably work pretty good. I don't know that elk would actually come to it, but if you use the tactics Chris talks about in his elk module, and you were literally, you know, your buddy couldn't stand five feet from you without just gasping, I'm going to bet that it would probably work pretty good in the fact that it would mask and cover up a lot of your scent. That's my opinion, Chris.
1: Yeah, and I will say that I do not purchase uh, elk scent and use it for myself. However, I didn't even think about the sneaky feet idea. Cause, uh, well, that's what I love about some of this stuff and being able to talk with, with other people and folks like you. If I'm out in the field and I come across an elk bed or just places where elk have been, and, and you'll find those places where they've urinated and, I mean, it's just nasty. Or a wallop. There's a big one. I will absolutely stomp my feet around in there and get my boots coated in that stuff so that way when I'm walking around, you know, I'm just, I'm leaving elk scent rather than as as much human scent. You're still going to leave human scent, but if you can just stinkify... My my boots, and and that's why I laugh. I I agree with you. I've actually back in my youthful ignorance, my youthful days when I was uh, maybe not so bright. I actually remember rolling around in an elk bed and just getting myself coated or taking you know fistfuls of um, saturated dirt and just rubbing it all over my clothes and just getting myself stunk up and you know and then realizing you know on day 2 of, of backpack hunting sleeping in a tent that maybe that
0: wasn't such a good idea
1: when i'm trying to <laughs> sleep in my tent but um, yes I, I like the idea of of using it for the sneaky feet that to meet that
0: to me absolutely because you can me. put those in the bed of your truck Yeah, you know, when you get back to your truck you and you never even have to put them inside the cab of your truck um, yeah, or or just and or, them
1: outside of the, or the tent
0: yeah, and or I'm thinking of um, you know situations where if, if you are car you know truck camping or at least using a truck or a quad to get from point A to point B, I mean you could keep a uh, action packer of some sort and keep all your clothes that are just smelling nasty. Um, but if you do that too much and you get in your vehicle with that, I mean you will literally you will literally make the inside of your truck. You'll never get it out. It will, it will smell horrible but if you can figure out a way to take your clothes on and off, take your, your, your sneaky feet or your boots or whatever on and off, um, you know I think if you just absolutely you know showered in the stuff, it would probably work better than it, it would harm you. and it would probably allow you to get closer to elk than it would if you didn't use it. and that's just my opinion. Well, and the other thing too that you said there, if
1: if you're going to be taking that and you know in and out in and out of your vehicle, keep in mind you're going to be picking up other scents as well, and so the more you can cross-contaminate that scent, uh, the less likely it's going to you know work as well. Now, what he was talking about is just spraying something on a limb, and you know kind of spraying stuff around your area. My right. two thoughts are this. My, my two thoughts are this, and, and it's just use this information for what it's worth. Um, a lot of times, if you have elk scent in an area, and if you want to smell like an elk in an area, and you want to use it as a way, and especially if you're talking about trying to use it in a way to cover your human scent or try to be a masking scent, I think you're going to end up having to use a heck of a lot more than just a little cup, a couple little pumps and little squirts um, out of a little handheld sprayer. I mean, typically you're you, you in order to do what to really smell like an elk, you're 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 especially if you're trying to use it as a cover set, you're going to need some volume. Now, if you just want to use it as a uh, calming type, you know, just oh there there's there was an elk in the area, that that's fine, you can do it, but In my opinion, if you understand how elk communicate, you know, I talk about the see you first, hear you second, smell you third, okay? When we're talking about a communication standpoint, smell you third, the see you first, hear you second, smell you third, smelling someone is the lowest on the priority list. Now, I'm not talking about from a safety standpoint if, if they come in and they're on edge because they don't think it's a realistic setup or their calling has not been realistic, so they're kind of cautious or, or nervous, or you're using bugles or whatever or if a, a younger age class bull comes sneaking in from the downwind side because he, he's nervous about getting his butt whipped from someone else. I'm not talking about that. That's a safety. But from a communication standpoint... If you take that into account, that they want to see you first, hear you second, smell you third, and what I talk about from the doorway principle, I can tell you, and I actually talk about it in those videos, you can cut out about 90 plus percent of all the situations of when an elk is actually going to swing around downwind. Now, granted, I can't do anything about swirling winds, and yes, having elk urine might assist in swirling winds. Again, though, I would say if you're doing everything that you possibly can to do, you know, reduce your human scent and then also using a fair amount of elk scent. Okay, now, in a swirling wind situation, sure, go for it. I think it probably will help rather than hurt. But I know a lot of guys try to use the elk scent as a way to circumvent the issues that are going to come with an elk swinging around downwind of your setup. I will argue if you call, if you pick your setups accordingly dart properly, and you call realistically, with strategic vocalizations and you know what you I think and I show this repeatedly, you can eliminate ninety plus percent of the times when an elk is actually going to swing around downwind, they'll actually just come walking to you or to your setup. And then it's for at that point, you know, whether you have a shooter situ- situation or whether you're, you know, solo calling, solo hunting like I do, you know, if you look at that doorway and you pick you you know where those elk are going to want to stand you can make sure that you're on the downwind side of that to where when the elk shows up, he's upwind of you. And even if he wants to try to swing around downwind of you, he's got to go all the way around you. So I personally do not carry elk urine with me urine with me, simply because I don't want to spend the money. I don't want to deal with the hassle of carrying something. It stinks to high heaven. And I just put into those other things into play to where... I know I can put that out wherever I really think he needs to be in order for me to capitalize on that shot. And then, in my opinion, if the winds are just too bad or they swirl too much, I'll just back out. But that—that's—that's—that's that's my, that's my thought. I, you know, like you said, Jay. Though I think if if you're talking about a situation where you're dealing with swirling winds and you just want to have something there, just maybe go.
0: Uh, why not go for it? Okay, the second question is, what if you're sitting water and then people come walking up or driving by? First of all, how do you politely invite them to leave? And second, (laughs) is that water hole now not worth sitting after that traffic goes by that day? I'll, I'll dive into this a little bit, Chris. Um, if you're sitting water and someone comes walking up and you're there first, what I would do is I would politely get out of my tree stand or my blind or my, um, you know, man-made built built-up blind, and I would walk over and say, "Hey," and they'll say, "Oh, I didn't see you there." And a lot of times, you can say, "Well." Um, what are we going to do? And a lot of times, guys will say, well, you're here first, I'll go somewhere else. Um, The the key is politely. He says, politely invite them to leave. Um, It's something that happens in Arizona all the time, and it's something that you need to be aware of, and I always say, first come, first serve. If you're there first, you have every leg to stand on that, you know, you're there first. Now, what guys like to do in Arizona is they like to go to seven or eight or ten different waterholes and set up their ground blind on these waterholes. And they even got to where they were hanging a note either on the blind or in the blind saying, I am going to be sitting this waterhole, or I've seen outfitters say, I'm going to have a client sitting this waterhole every day of the season, basically bud out. Well, that's created all sorts of problems and issues and what have you. The only thing I would tell the people that are committed to setting a waterhole is you need to go there and you need to be there first in every situation. If you're there first in every situation, morning, middle of the day, night, whatever it may be, then it, and you're there every single day of the season, then at least you have a little bit of a leg to stand on to say, you know, Uh, You know, my mobility is impaired and I have to rely on this water. I mean, you can explain it to people when they come up. Where the problems arise are, uh, you know, guys trying to, you know, leapfrog, get in in before the guy gets there. Um, Or you see that the, the, the water hole has tons of activity. You're hearing bulls bugle. You're seeing them come and go. And you know that someone's sitting there every single day and they're being good. They're getting there very early. They're staying the whole day. Like in those situations, in my opinion, first come, first serve. And I think we all, as sportsmen, we need to kind of monitor ourselves. In the situations where you might have a hot water hole and you've got two guys that want to fit the same water hole, maybe communicate and say, hey, what kind of bull are you looking for? Oh, it's my first elk hunt. I'd shoot any bull. Well, maybe the other guy wants to shoot, you know, six by six or better or wants to shoot only a big bull. Maybe he's willing to say, here's a picture of a bull. This is the only one I'm interested in. Why don't we both fit it? If any elk comes in, you can shoot whatever. I just want this one bull. As sportsmen, maybe we could be you know, good enough sportsmen that you could work that out. Or if there's a situation where there's a tree stand or a ground blind, maybe one hunter can sit the tree stand, one hunter can sit the ground blind. Or maybe you communicate and say, hey, listen, why don't you sit it in the morning? I'll sit it in the evenings. Or why don't you sit it tomorrow? I'll sit it today. Or or you sit it today, I'll sit it tomorrow. And be, be a sportsman and communicate. Say, hey, it was my day to sit it. Six bolts came in. Nothing I was interested in. Good luck tomorrow. You know, keep me posted and be a sportsman about it. I wish more of us, and we would probably not hear as much controversy controversy if people would be a little more sporting and and communicate with their fellow hunters Um, and then looking at this question here and then Chris I'll let you dive in Um, and then driving by is that waterhole now not worth sitting after the traffic goes by that day absolutely not in in Arizona, Rob, you have an Elk tag in Arizona specifically. In most units in Arizona, there's there's elk are used to traffic. Um, you'll actually, I've actually been following elk. I know they're going to a water hole. I hear a truck go by. They kind of pause, hesitate in the trees. They wet, let the car go by and then they go charging into the water hole. Just because a car goes by or just because a, a truck pulls up to the water hole and someone gets out and checks around, there's they still need to drink and they still need to go to water. So I wouldn't let that um, discourage you from sitting that water. Now, if you're picking a water hole that's just right off a main road and there's constantly people coming and checking, there's constantly people stopping and what have you, I might pick a different water hole. But I have been in Unit 9 and seen... Every time I drive by a water tank at 30 miles, 40 miles an hour, there's elk on the tank, and they basically stand there and watch me drive by. And I've also seen it where there's tanks that in Arizona where elk are just used to it, people coming and going. And if you sat there all day, nonstop, you would probably end up killing a bull. Chris?
1: Yeah, pretty much uh, what you just said. Um, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I will absolutely, uh, agree with your statement on first come, first serve. Uh, we do have to work together. Now, great. Okay. Let me, let me take a step back. First come, first serve. Absolutely. That's how I run myself and my hunters. Um, so a couple years ago, I had a client. It was dry. This is in Arizona? It was dry. And one of the bulls that, you know, Mike guy said he wanted a certain antler class age class of a bull he wanted a giant bull he killed a lot of good bulls and he wanted a giant and i knew that this area uh was a couple water holes and that's there was a giant bull that was living in this area so there was a really key water hole that i wanted to hunt and every day that we were, we'd go in there to check it out. Someone was there. So we just kind of moved on. We did, you know, it just, it is what it is. That someone was there. Well, then all of a sudden, one day, you drive by and the ground blind is gone. I don't know if they filled their tats. Well, somebody had killed an elk there. Now, okay, here's a, well, I mean, that's a, that's a separate discussion about what you do with a carcass, but um, somebody killed an elk there and all of a sudden now the ground blind has gone. Well, as soon as I saw that water hole sitting vacant, I mean, it was a mad scramble. I went, grabbed my ground blind. I mean, I smoked. I, mean, I dropped my hunter there, went back, grabbed the ground blind, put the ground blind up, and I made, for the next several days, literally, I made him get into that ground blind. It, it was like 4 a.m. It didn't get light for another two hours. 4 a.m. And he, the first day he did, he's like, what in the world? What is it? We're, we're not even going to have any activity here in the morning. I'm like, shut up yeah we are if you want what you want and you want to hunt what well, this is where we need to be and if you want to be have access to because there's a lot of other guys guides outfitters and other hunters that wanted it to camp their hunters on that i said if we want to crack at this we need to be the first one there and that's going to take commitment and so we were getting up at three o'clock in the morning and getting there early um and we did, we were there, we, we, and luckily we had some good folks around us that, you know, okay, well, Chris has got, you know, they made it there first, it's, you know, he's got a couple days here to work it, and so, it worked out. And the flip side, and, and the other part of that too is, uh, to this person's, um, question, it was on a, you know, in Arizona, you know, the game camera issue, people have game cameras on, and this was on the edge of a, a little secondary road, so there was traffic and there were guys coming in there throughout the day that wanted to check their game cameras. I literally told my hunter, we, we, we sat for three days, I think it was three days, we sat, he sat all day, literally all day, from like 4 in the morning until 8, whatever it was, after dark, all day long in that ground blind, um, and there was a lot of activity in and out. However, he saw acti- this particular water hole is kind of uh, hidden. It's kind of tucked in the timber a little bit. It's, it's relatively close to a couple different bedding areas. He had activity all day long. And just like you said, I've, I've driven out in that country to where, now, if it's a water hole that's, like, really way out exposed and, and it doesn't have any cover, you know, not a lot of cover nearby, maybe if it's a high-traffic area, those animals will, will kind of come in more towards the cover of darkness. But I, like you, Jake, those water sources that are tucked in uh, to timber or tucked into these little pockets, and if they're close to potential bedding areas, I yeah, you can have guys come in, check game cameras, come in to check the water hole. They walk right around the water, they turn around, and, and it, it kind of chaps your hind end a little bit, especially if you you know stick your hand out and you say, "Hey, I'm here," and they're like, "Yeah, whatever." I'm going to walk around and, and check, you know, for sign. Well, okay. Just take a deep breath. Um, most of the time, if, if if things settle down for at least extended periods of time, I have routinely watched elk come right into those same water sources that, that were, were disturbed, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes ago. Um, now, the real challenge, and Jay, I, okay, I love your um, your statement there, You know, kind of basically coordinate with a hunter and, and maybe schedule it, to so where if you've got somebody in there that says, all right, dang it, I know that you want to hunt this, but I want to hunt it too. How do we make this work? If it works out for you, say, okay, well, I want to hunt here Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you hunt here Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, and, and let's compare notes. So sometimes that's the best way to do it. Split it up. If, if the person has uh, honesty, integrity, and you do too, then split it up, share it. But I have also seen, and this is in Arizona, where literally there's a water source, a trick tank, and someone has a ground blind on one side of it, and literally 180 degrees opposite, here's another ground blind, and literally both guys go and climb in it, and basically they say, well, it's public land, anybody can hunt here, and
0: we can do whatever we want. I've also seen that same scenario where there's two blinds and nobody's sitting in it for days. In yeah, other words, exactly. they're trying, you yeah, know, and and a squat. We yeah, they're trying to cop a just, squat on it. Yeah, that just yeah, can't or, happen, or,
1: guys. Or what? Or what I saw? This is a couple years ago, and and this kind of got me sideways with with a couple guys because what they were doing is they're going around and they were parking an ATV or they were putting a. a these guys were using a paper plate from you know like a, you know, just a paper plate that you use for barbecue. They they put on a, a paper plate you know hunter sitting water at the access to that water. There was no one there. They were just they were just putting it in there just to kind of cob the squat or you know or you'll see guys coming in at prime time just why oh we have got to check game cameras. No you don't you know what I mean not not no you don't. So you're you're always the risk of dealing with a jerk is out there. Just understand, sometimes us worrying about jerks and sometimes us reacting to and adjusting what we're doing because of jerks ends up causing more... Disturbance and more lack of uh, or, or a lack of opportunity for us. Sometimes, if you just let them come in and change, check their game camera and walk, just get just wave to them, let them know that you're there. That hey, hunting here, and, and maybe show them that you got a bow. Maybe show them that you got a gun. That, yes, I'm actually hunting. I'm not just sitting here taking pictures. Um, yes, I'm hunting this this hole. Okay, go do your thing, and please just kind of extricate yourself from the area as quietly as possible. But if you don't if you run into a person that just wants to be a jerk, well, sometimes they're just a jerk for that evening because they, you know, maybe they mobilized, maybe they've camp, maybe their camp is a long ways away, maybe they've been planning on hunting They this put river. all their eggs in that basket. Exactly, they put all. That's a great way to say it, Jay. They put all their eggs in that basket for that one night. They show up and you've already beat them, and they're so angry. They're like, "Son of a, I don't care. I'm going to do it." Okay, let them, just let them. Okay, fine. And if, if someone shoots a bull, great. If not, oh, well. Uh, but just they might, the next, that might be the only time that you run into them. And the other thing that you said, too, is people need to seriously consider this. And we did this. Again, my client wanted a giant bull. And we were only looking, at, looking for like two, there's two particular bulls we were interested in. But he literally had bulls come all day long, every day, anywhere from you know 300 to 330 class, 340 class bulls coming in all day long. Well, one of the guys that uh, was camps near our camp, we started talking to him. He he still had never killed an elk. He was still trying to get his first bull. He didn't care if it was a, a five by five. Well, Heath and I looked at each other. we like, and I asked him. I said, "Dude, do you mind?" He's like, "No." So the next couple days. They shared the blind. They sat in the ground blind together. You want to know how much more enjoyable sitting in the ground blind is with a fellow hunter that you get along with rather than sitting there twiddling your thumbs all by yourself? So they sat the ground blind together and the, 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 it was my ground blind and the, the understanding was if, if the giant monstrosity bull comes in, well, Keith gets a shot at it. But if any other bull comes in, Glenn can take it. Well, Glenn ended up killing his first bull. He was he. It was he was ecstatic. It was an awesome, awesome hunt and experience. Not only for my client, but the other guy as well. It became a, a long term friendship. I mean, it, it it worked out great, and it didn't bother that water hole at all. And one last little thing: if someone kills an elk on a water hole, don't worry about that too badly. Now, hopefully. If they kill the elk and the thing stinking dies in the water, hopefully they're smart enough to try to either just, you know, we're talking Arizona, okay? So in Arizona, it is legal. In most areas, it is legal to use an ATV or some other vehicle to go recover your animal, okay? So if you can get a vehicle to it, cut your animal up, get it processed, or whatever, but just drag that carcass away from the water. Do, do all of us a favor and just pull the carcass away from the water source. But if you show up and there's a carcass a couple hundred yards away from the water, don't be discouraged and saying, "Oh, well, this thing, whole thing's ruined." Nah, not ne- not necessarily. I've seen elk come right back to the same water that somebody had, had killed the night before. So
0: don't get that, don't let that discourage you. Then he asks, "What if you see a bull that has an arrow in him already, but he is walking pretty well?" and is worth pursuing should you pursue him or assume some other hunter is going to be right on his tail i ask because the very first deer i shot in utah as a teenager was wounded and it led to an unfortunate incident with some old guy and my brother toe-to-toe with 30-odd fixes and me just wanting to resolve it peacefully so i let the guy have the deer after i asked him to show me a blood trail from where i had even spotted the deer i appreciate how you emphasize so regularly that we should all be good sportsmen. Thanks, Rob. Um, if you see a bull that has an arrow in him and he seems to be fine, I think that you should, and if it's a bull you want to shoot, I think you should try and finish the job and, and uh, you know, treat it as an elk that you want to pursue and pursue him. If you run into a situation where a bull goes running by you and it's bleeding and obviously freshly shot, I would monitor the bull, try and watch, see what's going on, you know, not booger the bull and then try and wait for the hunter or try and locate the hunter that has just shot that bull, just as if you had just shot the bull, be a good sportsman about trying to help that person recover their bull. But if you know, it's, it's happened before where someone hits one in the neck, someone hits one high in no man's land um, where they'll have an arrow shish kebabbing out of them um, and they seem to be fine. Um, you know, I, I, if it's a bull you want to shoot, I say go ahead and shoot it. If all of a sudden then uh, something arises and someone comes up, then you just have to have the gentleman's conversation of how do we handle this um you know one would say you know the person that strikes first blood probably should get it one would say whoever killed it should get it legally i think the game and fish would say whoever actually mortally killed it would supposed to tag it so i mean there's all sorts of issues there um you know if you have to get game and fish involved to make sure that it's the proper and legal way you know give them a call tell them what's going on um but you know again you should be a sportsman about it and do the right thing, even when people aren't looking. So, that's my two cents.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And and obviously, archery hunting is a lot easier than muzzleloader or rifle, just because typically, you know, someone says, "Oh, that was my bull, I, I wounded it." Okay, I, and I agree. My my philosophy is whoever really who, excuse me, whoever mortally wounded that animal first. Because there's absolutely a possibility that somebody, say, made a, uh, just, they, they pulled their shot a little bit and they caught a back of the liver in the guts. And that elk starts feeling sick, that elk is not, you know, he starts slowing down and then all of a sudden you're working a setup and all of a sudden this bull walks in and you shoot and kill him. Okay, that's fine. Part of the reason why that you were able to kill that bull and get a shot on is because somebody that bull was dead and that bull was was recoverable, could have been recoverable. So at that point, if it's a bull that you want, absolutely fill your tag, You shoot it. But understand that if all of a sudden someone comes down the you know the blood trail and says, uh, that's that's the bull I was. Okay, well if it's an, if it's an archery hunter. At the very least, their broadhead should match up with whatever hole is in that elk. So if he's using a three-blade broadhead, but the previous hole is a four-blade or a two-blade, uh, no, that doesn't match your equipment. You know, if the arrow's in in the animal, obviously, then you can match up fletchings and everything else. But I agree, and, and quite honestly, I, I like how the guy uh, handled his previous situation where, yeah, I mean... It, Whoever mortally, my opinion, whoever mortally wounded that animal first, if you just get a, uh, brought, uh, an arrow wound or, or neck or something, okay, yeah, you wounded the animal. The animal's fine. He's going to be running around. If someone else heart, shots, if heart shoots him, I'm sorry. Whoever, you know, stuck him in the neck, you, you, no, that's not your animal. You, you had a chance at that animal. You had an opportunity at that animal but it just didn't work out and so whoever just 12 ring that sucker and put him on the ground that that's theirs so no I I, I absolutely agree with 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 all of that I mean you, you've got to be a sportsman about it and if someone wants to be a jerk about it and make it an issue don't get no okay Here's two things. Number one, I agree, Jay. get the game warden involved. Absolutely. If you need to, get the game warden involved. But we all know the reality of some of these remote areas where you're in the middle of nowhere. A, can you get cell reception? B, how long is it going to be before a game warden gets there if the game warden even wants to show up? If at that point you're kind of on your own, don't. There can be some stupid individuals out there. Don't risk your personal safety, your health, safety, and well-being, and life for an animal. If, if No someone, fighting you, over five points. Jeez, <laughs> okay, I don't even care. I mean, if it's a 400-inch bull and, and he, uh, the other person starts pulling a gun and, oh, just walk away. Just, it's yeah. not, it's an elk. Not worth it. It, it's not worth it. You know what I mean? And, with today's social, with with today's day and age of social media, not saying you should do this, but take just plaster, just take a piss pile of pictures and, and just plaster the situation all over social media
0: and let let the world take care of it. Oh boy! Oh boy! <laughs> it's not, it's not a- worth it's not
1: worth getting it's not worth getting injured over. Uh, an elk it really isn't but I but I'm going to if if I see a a wounded animal come by me and it's something that I would be happy to put my tag on absolutely I'm going to pursue it and absolutely the very first opportunity I have a chance to put that thing on the ground I would do it because you never know if if someone's actually coming up behind that thing
0: yep All good stuff. Uh, Guys, I I really want to encourage you to send us uh, more of your elk questions. Uh, We're a couple months now before elk season, and Chris and I can uh, get these uh, questions answered. I know there's a lot more out there. I've actually got a few more, uh, but this is enough for this podcast episode. Um, I I want to thank you guys for your support and for uh, supporting this podcast as much as you do, being as loyal as you are. I uh, want to encourage you to check out uh, Row Hunting Resources. Uh, follow along Chris's Instagram Row Hunting. That's R O E Row Hunting Resources Instagram and Facebook. Um, Chris, give you uh, last concluding thoughts or, or anything else that um, that you'd like to say.
1: No, I, I think this is a this is a great little uh, resource for folks. I mean, have you know keep the keep the questions coming I, I really do enjoy um being able to bounce some you know having you chime in it as well because i have my opinions but i mean goodness gracious it's having another qualified person there chewing on some of this fat is is nice to to listen to and and just just help people get the most complete information as possible and the other thing too is uh I just looked it up and, you know, we were talking about rattling and we are talking about the sounds and stuff. If, if you're subscribed, for those that are subscribers, if you wanted, I looked it up, I've got the video here. So if you go into the elk module and you click on the foundation principles, that, that one block of information, the foundation principles are, for those listeners, are those basically what it is, the foundation of all the information that you need to build a foundation on how to best, you know, you get your setups and which calling strategies and tactics and all that so you click on foundation principles and then you click on the bull elk vocalizations and communications series it will open up all those videos that i've got on bull elk vocalizations and communication if you go down to the wines w-h-i-n-e-s wines you click on that video watch all i mean there's three videos on the wines but watch them all but the, the really good part where you get to listen to me and you get to watch bulls sparring you can hear this is on the third video at about three minutes and 30 seconds you it's a it's a it's a couple of really big bulls but they're just playing and, and sparring you'll be able to hear what we we're talking about if you want to try rattling i'm telling you it is one of the most underrated tech, the tactics especially for early season and that video clip of those bulls it'd be a is is absolutely what you want to sound like and, and what you want to do so check it out
0: right on buddy um thanks so much for your time and i look forward to having you on again and uh man it's uh, elk season's coming uh personally i've got a couple of doll sheep hunts that i've got to get uh under my belt and get completed this summer before i can really start thinking about elk season i did just get back from the Otfix ranch over in colorado um i was putting out trail cameras and checking trail cameras and um yeah it's going to be here before we know it and uh you know we're kind of dry there in southern colorado like the rest of pretty much the southwest so um it's going to be something we're going to be talking about probably from from here until the season starts i hope hopefully you know fourth of july hopefully these monsoons will kick up and um you know they're they're actually forecasting some rain here in colorado next week um, and um, it would be great if we could get some in Arizona and New Mexico as well, and, of course, Utah, all the states, to be honest with you. But, uh, yeah. Chris, it's always great having you on, and uh, until next time, God bless, okay?
1: All right, brother, you too. Be safe, and we'll talk to you, talk again
0: soon. Okay, sounds good.